This is the Hack the Future podcast, the human stories behind courage, purpose, and imagination. Join your host, Terrence Mowry, who will guide you on the journey of reimagining the world as we know it. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Sir David Carter, who's the author of Leading Academy Trusts, Why Some Fail, But Most Don't. He's the Executive Director of System Leadership at Ambition Institute and a trustee of Centerpoint Teaching Awards and Talent Foundry. Prior to this, he spent over 30 years in school leadership before becoming a Regional Schools Commissioner and then UK National Schools Commissioner. Today, Sir David and I explore some big catalytic questions about the future of education. How do we make education future fit and resilient in a world of adversity? And how do we scale the superpowers that will help us thrive, such as curiosity, grit, and reinvention? So today, I would like to plant a narrative in the here and now. It feels like the future has already arrived. Cars that can drive themselves, platforms that can anticipate our every needs, and robots capable of everything from complex manufacturing to advanced surgery. Uh, today, I'm delighted to welcome Sir David Carter. He's the author of Leading Academy Trusts, Why Some Fail, But Most Don't. Sir David, welcome. Terence, good morning, and thank you very much for having me on the, on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, today, I'd like to uh, really give our listeners the equivalent of a double espresso and hmm. answer some big catalytic questions. Um, the big one is really, how do we make education future fit and resilient in a world of change and volatility? It, it feels like change used to happen as a breeze. Now it feels like a category five typhoon. For sure. I, I think this is a this is a brilliant question. Um, and I think there are a number of opportunities and barriers to this mm. becoming a reality. So I, I think that, that my, my first statement would be that Education is one of those things that everybody knows something about because pretty much everybody went to school and has a view about what school's function is, what, what, what its purpose is, and, and, and what it did for them. And so mm. when we're comparing the experience of, of parents, for example, um, they, they, talk, they see education through the lens of their own experience, but mm. also through the lens of their children as well. And then you have the other sort of side of this equation, which is that uh, education exists within a political vacuum as well. And yes. In, in, in England in particular, where the tenure of a, of a UK government uh, is in gen generally speaking is four or five years, although in recent times it's been much shorter than that. Mm. Um, you also have a very limited period of time during which educational change uh, and new visions can be articulated. Yes. And I think schools kind of sit in between these two spheres, which is the, the expectations that parents and families have of what education will do for their children mm. versus what the political system um, expects education to provide for the taxpayer's dollar. And mm. so I think it's a really interesting time at the moment because change is happening in our school sector mm. almost in spite of both of those things. And so change because of people's desire and appetite to think differently about how we how we think about the purpose of education yes against the very real backdrop um of of education both in the uk but i'm sure in in, in the states in asia and other parts of the world mm. where actually the pandemic is forcing us to rethink a lot of the traditional ways we've delivered education so mm. it's a challenging time for school leaders but it's also a really exciting one and a, and a land and a, a period of time where i think there are huge opportunities for us it's such an interesting uh, point, and I think we're at this incredible inflection point right now where there's a real opportunity of sort of moving from one 
gateway or portal to another and it's a chance not just to return to normal but reimagine what I call relevancy and reimagine potential and I wanted to get a sense of what are your current roles and what are you what are the sort of big items or the big buckets that you're working on right now in this area so um I, I have had the most amazing career. I've been incredibly lucky. Um, I was one of those people. I went to school myself, then I went to university, then I went back to school. Uh, and I've been working mm-hmm. in education since as a teacher since 1983. Yes. Uh, and as you mentioned in the introduction, I've had uh, you know a number of years of experience in the leadership sector. So uh, when I ended my job working as National Schools Commissioner, which the, the, the responsibility I had in that role was to oversee the, the UK government's academies programme. Mm-hmm. Um, and work very closely with the sector to to raise standards as rapidly as possible in some of the schools that had, where, where that hadn't been the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came out of that role two years ago um, with, a, with a very clear intention that what I wanted to do was to put something back into the sector um, and really help develop the next cadre of leaders for our school system. And mm-hmm. so the, the main work that I do these days is, is leadership development work. Mm-hmm. Um, I teach on an MBA program. Um, I, I work for the Ambition Institute, which is a fabulous organization focused upon educational improvement in some of the most disadvantaged uh, parts of the, of, of, the, of the country. Yes. So a lot of my work is around that, but also um, I, I, I'm in becoming more and more interested in the role of governance mm-hmm. um, and, and what governance um, and the role of the trustee is in that. And as you mentioned again in your introduction, I, I've been privileged. I'm already, I'm a trustee of three charities. And yes. the one which is the closest to my heart is probably Centrepoint, which is a charity that's aiming to, to eradicate youth homelessness in England um, mm. and it's, it's a massive challenge for the sector so that's what I'm spending my time doing Fantastic. I suppose the three mm. the three things that I I care about probably more than anything else mm. is, is is that growth of leadership and what does good leadership look like and mm. how do we develop the next generation of leaders mm. and then linked to that um, this perennial problem which is a global problem I think not mm. just one that's rooted in the UK but about how do we close the gap yes. in educational attainment for when you compare the outcomes for our most disadvantaged children from the most vulnerable communities with mm. their more ad- ad- advantaged peers, that, that's that's been a big driver for me for most of my career, and it's mm. something that I still worry a lot about. And then the third element of it, I suppose, is how do we how do we build a different way of looking at talent and professional mm. development, and, and what does that look like, and how do we how do we ensure that our our teachers have everything that they need at their disposal in terms of their knowledge, their intellectual capacity their technological capability as well as their knowledge about learning when they set forth in front of every class they teach every day. And those are really exciting areas. And, and mm. I will never crack those personally because they're too big, big, big bigger, bigger theme to, to explore. But I, I'm really interested to how do I put what's now over 30 years experience back mm. into that thinking and, and, and try to move that forward a bit. So that by the time I decide not to do this anymore, we've, we've, we've inched it further forward. This segues really, really well into my next question, which is uh, um, you've had a book published recently in August, a fantastic book called Leading Academy Trusts, Why Some Fail But Most Don't. And what are some of the sort of big learnings and takeaways from that book relating to some of those previous points that you mentioned? Yeah. So let me just very briefly mm. take a couple of seconds just to, to position the book, um, particularly for people who maybe are not familiar with the concept of an academy. Yes. And those of you in England will absolutely know what that is. But 
uh, I know that this podcast attracts an audience that's that's global rather than just uh, in terms of our own national um, feel. So, so an academy, first of all, uh, is a state-funded but school that is independent of local oversight. So the local authority doesn't does no longer have responsibility to run an academy. That is, that is run directly from central government. Um, and that was hence my role as a regional and then later as a national schools commissioner to work on behalf of the Secretary of State for England, for England to to oversee the quality of provision that academies are directly answerable to the Department for Education, uh, the quality of provision that they were bringing. And and it was a brilliant job. And and, and when I talked about leading, leading academy trusts, it was about what the leaders do to make that really work. And then secondly, when I said why some fail but most don't, there have been failures in, in this structure, which mm -hmm. uh, partly because this has been a very new model of education, uh, less than 20 years old uh, in terms of how, how that's in place. And we've learned a lot of lessons and I wanted to share some of that experience around it. But mm -hmm. to answer your question, which, mm -hmm. is a, which is a very good one, I, I, I think there are, there are probably five themes that, that the strongest academy trusts who come together under one umbrella organization. So, so my role in, my, in the schools that I led in Bristol was to be the chief executive officer of an academy trust. Yes. Um, 15, 16 schools working together under one umbrella organization. And so collaboration is number one. Mm. Um, and how do, we, how do we collaborate with purpose? Yes. Um, and that's a really important element. And I, I talk about a lot, a lot about that in the book. Mm. The second element of it is around how do you, how do you build an organization around some really strong and deeply understood values and beliefs? Mm. So that when it gets difficult, your values and your culture mm. and the things that you hold dear and the behaviors of the organization uh, really comes to the fore. And an organization that's bereft of that, in my experience, usually fails. Yes, I mean this is a this very much resonates with me as well. This idea that I think most organisations are kind of one or two steps away from major trust breaches, and and values are kind of like our north star um, for prioritising all types of decisions. Yeah, I, I I completely agree with that, and 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 that in in many respects, I think, and I think back to my role as a as a chief executive of of the trust i led yes i would think probably 80 percent of my work was about that it was about building the confidence and the capacity of the organization to first of all believe it could go even further than anybody ever thought it was possible mm. but also to take people on that journey with you because there, there are a number of unethical ways you can improve schools um, and one and one of the fallouts of that is that communities and, and staff and children become disengaged with it and, and mm. if you do that you, you you've lost everything so yes. So that notion of building organization around values and beliefs is very important, I think. And then, and I suppose the third, the third element of that is, is around governance and really good governance and, and governance that doesn't just um, think about how you hold people to account, but also how you, how you get the balance right between challenge and support. And so that the right questions are asked at the right time. And, and in and this particular climate at the moment where, where, where leaders and teachers and schools are under such, such pressure because of the pandemic, the role of governance to really ensure that people are well supported and that somebody is taking care of them to, 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 be, to be blunt is a really important element of it and then the, mm -hmm. the fourth and fifth things that i see that work really well are what, what i alluded to in my previous question yes these are this this model of of trust leadership mm -hmm. and this model of school leadership is only really about school improvement it's nothing else the deal when you sign the funding agreement with uh, with the department of education to run an academy what that meant was that you said you were going to improve that school so that that community had a school it could be proud of, producing better outcomes for children than anybody had ever done before. Um, and that's a really important and key responsibility. 
mm. and you only deliver that responsibility if you build a workforce that is that is led by talent and and talent management and how you develop people is a really important part of it so mm. For me, people's professional development and career development, but also their well-being and how well they're looked after as people, you get that bit right and you can move mountains. Some fantastic points there that are absolutely close to my heart as well. And I know that when we had the chance to meet, I think it was about a year ago, um, yeah. we had a conversation about you know leaders, developing leaders, uh, and also the importance of purpose, purpose being a, a, an energizer, a clarifier, a simplifier. It'd be great to hear a bit, a bit more about um, the MBA programs that you're involved in, and um, specifically for you know for teachers. Yeah, so the the MBA program is a, is an absolute delight to work mm. on. Um, I, I was lucky enough twenty yes twenty years twenty years plus to go to do an MBA. Um, which, which actually at the time as a school leader was very rare. Um, you know, I, I was I was lucky that uh, the, the the chair of governors who uh, who was uh, who appointed me to that first headship that I had in 1997 um, came from a business background and believed passionately in the MBA uh, as a training uh, program. Hmm. Um, and I and I and I did one, and I was the only educationist on the program, um, and it was a fantastic opportunity. So when the chance came up to to be the lead teacher on one. Um, I, I snapped it up, and, and what I'm trying to do with the MBA yes. is to so the cadre is all educationists, I should say. It's an MBA in educational management, so everybody on the program is a is a is a school leader, either a head teacher or a trust leader or a CEO, like I was. Mm. Um, and what I'm trying to do with the program is to get people to think about uh, organisational complexity. Uh, and change management in, in 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 that state of complexity. Yes, and a bit less about necessarily how you run your school, but how you run a brilliant organisation. And mm -hmm. so, so I'm looking very much about uh, processes of change. I'm thinking about how you how you lead uh, a talented organisation. I'm thinking very much about how you mm -hmm. execute on strategy. But the thing that's been really interesting is that whereas many educational leadership programmes tend to have educationist i guess a bit like myself leading from the front who've done done that particular job mm. we've tried really hard to make sure that people like yourself um, with the kind of experience that you have mm. um, challenge the thinking of the traditional educationalist to think outside the box a little bit about doing things differently and and you know when, when you're working in a sector like i've described where yes. you know you're, you're you are really governed pretty tightly by the fixed term parliament model and what what the uh, what the government of the day believes is important Mm. It's not a blank piece of paper to make up the vision for your organization in the ways it might be in the private sector. And so you have to work within that parameter. But I still believe really strongly that even with that potential constraint, it's really possible for leaders to do extraordinary things and to think differently. And, and the MBA is basically trying to give them the both the confidence, but mm. the capability and the capacity to do that and think that way. I loved what you said about um, you know, leading change, being an agent of change, um, and also fighting complexity, not with complexity, but fighting complexity with simplicity. I certainly come across this all the time on my travels previously and, and speaking with organizations. This, you know, I recently worked with an organization actually that uh, has reduced it, the number of job titles from 40,000 to 22,000. <laughs> and I see, you know, people in all walks of life drowning in information, drowning in data. And it reminds me of uh, a Nobel laureate who said, too much information leads to a poverty of attention. And I'm, I'm interested to sort of uh, get your insights in terms of what do you think are some of the kind of 
future mindsets, skill sets that are going to need to be um, scaled in order to thrive in the future from a from a student perspective and a teacher perspective? Yeah, it's a great question, and 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 I and I've been wrestling with that one, and and talked a bit about it in the book about what I think some of these challenges are going to be, um, and I I think there are probably there's a, there's there's three or four I think um, to, to so you know just to be really precise around yes. around the time that we've got this morning, but I I think one of those revolves around data science. Um, and and the concept that Michael Barber used to call beautiful data, mm. um, and and it's the it's the transition from me from being data rich to being data informed, and and I see um, so the use of data in the education sector all over the world, but particularly in England, has yes. has just um, expanded beyond beyond recognition. So there is so much information out there about how our schools perform, how our children perform, what the challenges are, how we spend our money. Um, all of these things are out there for us. And, and I think we've now got to capitalize upon that wealth of knowledge and turn it into strategies that are really informed by that data. Yes. Um, and I think the I think the role of data science, um, both in big government, but also in regional government, local government, then filtering down to the education sector in particular, I think is one of our challenges. Mm. I think there's a second challenge around communication. Um, which you might find strange to pick when you're mm. talking about an education industry, which is about people and how, and how we how we communicate with one another. Mm. But but I'm more interested in the different methodologies that we use to communicate and how do schools communicate not just to their communities but to the community all over the world. So I'm, I'm in the camp that says there aren't a million problems we're trying to solve in education. I think there's about four or five, and and whether you're teaching in an international school in Australia or you're teaching in, in, a, in a Chinese speaking school in, in Beijing, or whether you're in the UK, I think many of the challenges are the same. Um, and I think we would be richer if we could find a better way to communicate. Yes. The third challenge is around um, digital learning. Uh, and, and, and this one fascinates me because um, I've always suspected that the education sector hasn't been great about this. There's been, there's been huge investment in hardware and kit and Wi-Fi technology and digital mobile devices but i don't think we've still really grappled with what we do with them in in a, in a genuine learning sense yes. and of course what we're seeing at the moment um you know i had a conversation um earlier today you know when we're, when we're middle of october 2020 mm. um and the school leader i was talking with uh, first thing this morning has got in 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 his school he's got some children who've been in school face to face and they've been there this in september He's got some children that have had a couple of days in school and a couple of days at home every week. Mm. Uh, and he had to send a bubble home this morning because somebody's contracted coronavirus oh, in that group no. and they're going to be off school for the next two weeks. Mm. And so blended learning is, 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 not, is not just about how we learn, it's about where we learn as well. And I think what we learned in the March lockdown period through the summer was mm. how ill-equipped we were really to teach online learning really well. And and I think there's three aspects to that. One mm. is, do we have enough digital technology that every child can have a device in their hand? Yes. The second one is, if you live in certain parts of England, particularly more rural, Wi-Fi technology is really difficult. Mm. So therefore, the connectivity still is bad, isn't it? Mm. But the one that really interests me is how we teach online and the pedagogical processes of delivering mm. on, online. Now, we talked about the MBA earlier. And yes. the MBA has gone online basically from April onwards. And I've had to really think hard about about how I how I teach online and, mm. and 
you know, in a way that I can probably hold the audience in a conference room for maybe 40, 45 minutes talking to them. Yeah. I can't do that online. I have, I have to be much clearer about my 10 minute, 15 minute exposition and then go very quickly to a conversation so that people don't tune out. Mm. And I think that's something that we're having to learn quite quickly about how you work with, particularly with children and young children, about how you maintain their interest in, in, in something which is not enriched by a live teacher in front of them in a classroom. So mm. I think those are just three of the issues which really, really interest me. And, and I'll tell you the other thing I'd put them mm. into. I'd put them into the box that says these, these, some of these things around data science, e-learning, communication, have had to be scaled up very quickly because of the pandemic. Yes. I actually think they'll outlive the pandemic because people are realizing this is a better way to work. So mm. very briefly, my own experience as a, as a, as a trust CEO um, with schools on quite a broad geographical footprint in the Bristol area was, well, I probably spent more hours in my car driving to meetings than I did holding meetings. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas actually now, of course, um, a lot of the a lot of the interactions that I'm having in my current role, but certainly I would have done then, could have been done the way that we're talking this morning by by by, by technology, mm. and that frees up time to think differently about my work. But I tell you what, it also does mm. it frees up time for me to stop work a bit earlier. Um, and I think one of the challenges that we we have got to think about is the mindset around. You what working day looks like when you're doing technological communication, and and actually it's okay to buy some time back for your own well-being because you've done your day's work in the concept of where the kind of communication has become easier. So yeah. there's a number of benefits that have come out of the last six months, which I think will outlive the, pan the pandemic. Uh, you know, it's uh, I, I can really relate to this as well. I was doing a, a a Zoom call a couple of weeks ago with a CFO who, uh, you know, I've always tended to meet and obviously not in an office environment, but he was at home, obviously, and his seven-year-old daughter walked in with a cup of tea. And, it, and apparently it was like the first time she'd done that. And it was a bit of a moment, like uh, he, he was really um, emotionally kind of uh, taken aback by it. And uh, I, I was obviously, you know, an observer of that, but it was it was a real moment of compassion. And I, I must admit, when, when this the pandemic started and we all jumped online i was a bit of a, a sort of tech skeptic in a way i thought oh gosh this is exhausting now looking at screens all day but yeah. as it's progressed I've, I've started to see more and more of the benefits and like you said just the incredible saving of time the benefits to the climate in terms of um you know reduction of all those emissions so you know more, more energy and more focus on what really matters yeah, completely. Um, and, and actually, you realize that sometimes there's quite a lot of fluff in your day. Yes. Um, which which uh, can be can be removed. And, and actually, you know, guess what? Nothing bad happens. Like <laughs> <laughs> life is life is better. Life is better. Um, yeah. And, and so I, I, I think the, the, the way that we're thinking differently and conceptualizing the role of, of leadership in the school sector and what the role of a head teacher is, I think is a really interesting dynamic and, and is changing, I think, before our very eyes. We've got a couple more questions to go. And I, I wanted to build upon one of the threads around uh, e-learning and tech in general. And the, you know, there's this saying that, um, you know, tech is eating the world. If you look at some of the statistics coming out, by 2030, we'll be up to nearly uh, 7.5 billion internet users from around four and a half billion today. Uh, Internet of Things, so that machine to machine connections from 10 billion today to 46 billion by 2030 and then in terms of 5g uh 5 million uh 5g connections today to 7 billion 
uh, by 2030? So, you know, exponential. What what can we what can you know? What are some of the learnings or inspirations you you have taken from big tech? I'd be interested to get your insights. I think what the benefit for education, I think, around mm. what you just described is the the immediacy of, uh, and access to content. Um, and you know, when, when I went to, I was in secondary school in the 1970s, mm. and basically my my knowledge source was my classroom teacher. Um, yeah. You know, there, there there were various newspapers or magazines that I mean. Young, younger listeners will not remember this. There used to be something called Look and Learn, yeah. um, which I, I used to that. get on a Friday. Yeah, um, which is my which is my parents' attempt to 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 make me to read get me to read more broadly. <laughs> um, but actually, you know, you think about it now. I think about my own children who are now in their twenties and thirties, and and how how their lives have been completely revolutionised by technology in, in a way that, uh, quite frankly, I, I I can just about understand, and and, and some days completely not understand. Mm. And, and and I and I I wonder about one of the challenges for education is that that the that the very people that we are teaching the young people in our classroom mm. are already more tech savvy than many of the people who are teaching them, mm. and 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 I think the first point is that schools have to just recognise that, but they're not going to be able to compete with that. They're no. not going to be able to keep compete with the variety of social media platforms that mm. young people engage in, um, and there's a risk with that. You know, mm. you know, I, I worry a lot about internet safety and 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 and. Uh, and how we how we police that but the point is that, mm. that that young people if they want that information they can pretty much get it from wherever they want and that does begin to think differently about the the role of the teacher in schools mm. uh, and, and i think what's interesting and it's a really exciting challenge yes um, an ambition institute uh, who i mentioned earlier that i work for are doing quite a lot of work in this area it's about the science of teaching and what the what the pedagogical cognitive processes are in terms mm. of being a great learner and being a great educator so I think I think that's quite an interesting step forward because if if we are in a position where technology, um, probably at the local school level as well as some of the larger corporations helping us with this, mm. means that the teacher no longer has to spend time creating and curating resources, it actually gives them more time to think about the teaching of those resources and how useful they can be. And I think that's quite an interesting challenge for us to reflect upon going forward. It also means mm. potentially. And this goes back to the point I made earlier that a teacher, let's imagine there's a teacher on the call this morning who's teaching in, in a high school in Chicago listening mm. to this podcast, who is a genius physics teacher and is about to go and teach a wonderful physics lesson at, uh, at midday today. There is no reason why that lesson couldn't be watched by a group of children in London this afternoon. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are a number of reasons why they can't right now, but yes. in the future, they, they, they may not be. So I, I think there is potential to think think about that. And and my, 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 my second point to, to it is one which I think is maybe slightly more controversial. Mm. Um, but in England particularly, as we are about to enact Brexit and become potentially a, a slightly less connected island yes. to, to the rest of Europe, technology is the antidote to that. Um, and I don't want to see a generation of young people who don't understand the value of being a European citizen as well mm. as a global citizen. This is um, and being able to understand what it's like to be a young person, person growing up in Germany or France or Spain, mm. as well as in China and India and Pakistan. That, mm. that, that for me is really where technology can enrich those partnerships because no Brexit deal is going to stop a teacher setting mm. up a, a video conference with a, with a group of 14-year-olds in another country if they can do it. You, you, 
some very important points there and um, your, your point about you know the, just this exponential rise of technology the the exciting possibilities of technology in terms of immersive interactive and, and from anywhere in the world it also reminded me of my own five-year-old niece who i've nicknamed cto um child technology officer I like that. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. So I think most families can relate to that. Most families have got at least one CTO in the family, child technology officer. They've got um, a few ATFs <laughs> as well, which is oh, yeah. the adult technology phobic. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good I like this one as well. Um, <laughs> the late educator Sir Ken Robinson, he did that yeah. famous TED Talk and one of those really important provocative messages around creativity being educated out of us by the time we leave school or college. What are your thoughts on that? And given the uh the sort of the the you know today's the slowest that will ever be in a lifetime perspective what what can we do to continue to scale lifelong uh curiosity so so ken ken robinson is is somebody who i have admired all all of my career um so we, my, my own personal background is music i'm a musician by training. i saw that so, um, a music teacher yeah, I yeah. taught music when I, uh, when I started teaching, and, and still still play my piano, and uh, and you know, music uh, is a massive part of, of my life. And and I, I and I taught drama, I taught dance, uh, I led a faculty of of, art, of arts educators um, in early in my career before I became a head. And so the arts for me are really important, and, and absolutely are central to a young person's development. Mm. And 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 they're central for for me. One really fundamental reason is that we we need to create the opportunity for young people to engage in in learning that enables them to express something that they don't understand within themselves and sometimes whether we paint whether we write whether we dance whether we talk whether we make music it gives an expression for that and i think in this current climate at the moment where where, where children are confused about what's happening they're anxious about what's happening. We're seeing an exponential rise in mental health challenges for young people. Mm. The artists have such a fundamentally important role. But having said that, but not mm. with, I'm not worth wanting to contradict myself. Mm. Creativity doesn't just belong to the arts. Mm. And I think that's the point that, that Ken was making when he, when he spoke about that in the, in the TED Talks, that we, we need to recognize that there is creativity in, in English, there's creativity in maths, there's creative, creativity in technology. And that the ability to be creative is a lifelong skill that, that, that many jurisdictions all over the world crave. Mm. Um, and, and in England, we've seen a shift towards what's known in, in our country in the assessment regime as the EBAC, which is basically yes. a composite of subject, English, math, science, humanities, and the modern language. And I, I'm, I am in no way saying that it's not important. It's really important. Those are, those are important humanities and languages and social sciences that children need to have access to. Mm. But I worry if we elevate a group of subjects above other subjects like the arts, for example, that contribute something very different, different to a young person's upbringing. When I was ahead, mm. looking at some of the children who I knew found school difficult, um, and sometimes that manifested itself in behavioral challenges, mm. but some of the areas in which they absolutely thrived and did really well in were the arts and sports. And so we, 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 we must never denigrate the arts and sports to being a behavioral challenge solution. We need to put it front and left and center of a child's experience. And so um, I, 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 I don't, I'm not as pessimistic as, as Ken was when yes. he said creativity is being educated out of children because mm. there, there are lots of people in the education system believe what I believe in and they will absolutely go to their grave believing this is the right thing to do. And, and it's those people that, that, that give me the hope and the confidence that young people will still want to go on to be professional musicians, mm. professional dancers and actors and actresses. 
alongside that uh, curiosity and creativity, what are your thoughts on grit and resilience? In, in Finland, for example, there's this word called sisu. It means Viking spirit. And it's this, this sort of alchemy of uh, uh, courage and tenacity and resilience. And uh, I think there's probably parents all around the world right now thinking, you know, is, is grit and resilience even teachable? How, how do we kind of uh, model it, scale it, so that, um, you know, the next generation have, the, have those tools and mindsets and heart sets to be able to thrive in a, in a world that is virtual, automated and very different to today. Yeah, this is a, this is a really interesting area. And, and I, I think occasionally we, we are guilty of putting sort of words like grit and resili- resilience into a kind of a, into a kind of a box that says, yeah. look, if I give you this box, you're going to be okay. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's much more sophisticated than that. And I, and I think we also have to recognize, particularly in the education sector, that that, 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 um, that ability to, to be resilient isn't just about young people, it's about adults as well. Um, mm. and, and I think that's a very important element of school leadership to, to build resilient organizations that take, take care of the mental well-being of the people who work within it. But I, I'm a big fan of the Maslow hierarchy of need mm. and, 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 and like that top part of the pyramid, which is about self-determination and mm. self-actualization. Because I think resilience is not something that is done to people or given to people. It's something that's developed from within. Yes. Um, and um, any resilience that I believe that I have usually has come and stemmed from challenges that I found very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and whilst I may not have resolved all those challenges, the process of trying to, whether it's with a coach or with my family or just just thinking about it, mm-hmm. just just adds another brick in my wall of resilience inside me. Yes. And I think that's what we have to do with young people. We we almost have to give young people the opportunity to fail um, mm-hmm. and help them through that process and support them to become better learners or or, or better young adults as they go mm-hmm. forward. Yes. And, and not just look at the root cause of it, but look at how what, what was behind that and how do we make, help them to overcome those challenges. Mm. And, and grit and determination, you know, are, are really big elements of that. And it's the reason why, you know, many socially disadvantaged young people do incredibly well. You know, when you, when, when you, when you think about some of the challenges that our young children face, they might be carers for their parents. Mm. They, they, they may have challenges with... Um, with families that are that are disconnected or, or, or dislocated, and yet they come to school and they do brilliantly. Yes, um, and and they would never they would never even say they were being resilient. They're mm-hmm. just saying that this is my life and this is what I do to get through it. And I, I think we we just have to be really mindful that this is a very personalized area of of, of individual development. Yes, but that notion of trying to climb through the pyramid of through security, through confidence, through through support and access to support to become self determined a self-determining individual is, is part of that element, I think. And it's something which um, the society, I think, will, will, will recognize as a real value going forward because the period that we're in and, and as we come out of this period is going to need people to continue to be resilient beyond the, the way they are today. Let's square the circle and go back to the beginning. Our goal today was to explore some catalytic questions. I love this idea of asking, you know, what questions do we want to be remembered for? What are the bravest questions we can ask of ourselves and our, our, our peers? And I think one of the big ones we were looking at is really this question around how, how can we make education more uh, future fit and resilient in the face of uh, extreme adversity? This sort of leads to the final big question, which is, um, what would you like your ultimate legacy to be? 
Um, wow, that's a, <laughs> oh, what a great question to end with. Um, so I suppose if I think about that, there, I think there is a legacy for me. Yes. Um, and, and, it, and it's this. Um, over the course of the years that I've been a head teacher and the other roles we talked about this morning, so, so I, I was first appointed to be a head in 1997, so 20, 23 years I've been involved in educational leadership. Yeah. Um, and I heard this week um, of a colleague uh, who was a member of one of my leadership teams who's just got their first headship. Um, and, and when I went back over my career and I looked through the teams that I've, I've led and the, the people that have worked with me, he was the 34th person uh, in that 23-year period to work for me who's now gone on to be ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I just felt an incredible sense of satisfaction in that, in, yes. in that just maybe just a little bit of the way that we work together, a little bit of the way that I try to model leadership, a little bit of the way that I try to set out what I saw as some of the challenges and opportunities with leadership rubbed off on those people. And in in the book, mm-hmm. uh, before I go into chapter one, I, I started by writing a letter to my former self. Fantastic. Um, trying to imagine, you know, in, in 1997, when I'm sitting down in my in, in, in my school with my, my first day of being ahead, yes. um, what would I like to have known then that I know now? And, mm-hmm. and some of that came through it. And I think having that number of people who are now doing some of the things, um, some remarkable things in schools across England and uh, and Wales in some cases. Um, that's incredibly satisfying. And so if that's a legacy, then I'd be very happy with that. So David Carter, Executive Director of System Leadership at Ambition Institute and author of a great book, Leading Academy Trusts, Why Some Fail But Most Don't. Thank you so much. Thank you and thank you for your time this morning and good luck to everybody who's listening. What an energizing conversation with Sir David Carter today. The number one takeaway for me is that the pandemic is a once in a lifetime opportunity to not just return to work, but reimagine relevancy and future potential. Do we continue to do things the old way or do we embark on a radical global mission to transform education and rebuild our approach from the ground up? As the late psychiatrist Oliver Sacks once said, the greatest gift in life is believing, belonging and becoming. Join me next time when I'll be interviewing a Nobel laureate who's on a mission to save our planet.